We uh, want to remember that our Ventura campus, via amazing technology, will be joining us for the sermon. So let's let them know how much we love them. Big love. And let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We are continuing in our series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. This is the fourth installment of the series. We'll be talking about the breastplate of righteousness this morning, the breastplate of righteousness and how God has given us that to help us stand firm against the schemes of the enemy, to be able to resist the enemy that he might flee from us, to walk in the victory of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. I want to remind you that we've provided you some resources on spiritual warfare during this series. Uh, last week, we recommended the book to you, Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare. You guys, I think, bought all the copies, so we don't have any more, but I'm sure you could find somewhere to get those. That's an excellent book for you. Uh, we also put uh, several of my old teachings on spiritual warfare online that are beyond the scope of this current series. So you might want to go online and get some of that. And some of those uh, sermons, we talk about how to cast out demons and what it looks like when a person is demonized. So a lot of the stuff that we won't necessarily cover in this series may be very helpful and pertinent to your life. And then also, we want to field all your questions and serve you in that way. So you can send an email during the week to the battle at realitycarp.com or for the Ventura campus to the battle at reality ventura.com and uh, we've been getting lots of questions throughout the week and mostly fielding those and emailing you back and some of them make their way into what we speak about in the sermon but we really want to be helpful to you and equip you to stand firm because Christ has certainly provided for us and who he is and what he's done for us in the cross to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy and we ought to walk in victory not act as though we were victims when it comes to the enemy Amen? amen amen so we're going to read the whole text that we're taking several weeks to look at. That's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and then we'll get in the study. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Paul writes in Ephesians six ten and says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14 Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you that your Word is true, that it's living and it's active, it is right. 
Thank you that it brings us life. Thank you that Holy Spirit, you work together with the Holy Word to do incredible things in our lives, to conform us into the image of Christ, to strengthen us in the person of Christ, to enable us to stand firm and resist the schemes of the enemy in our lives. And Lord, we would confess that There's all sorts of ways that the enemy comes against us. And sometimes we feel overwhelmed and intimidated. But you've called us to be strong in you and to stand firm. And we say together that we need help with that. So we thank you for your word, which is a tremendous help for us. Please enable me to preach it in a way that's faithful to Christ and to the Bible. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, who's a teacher of all things and who supplies us with incredible strength to walk in the light for the glory of Jesus and for our own good. So give us ears to hear and hearts to respond and feet to obey. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 14, we see the mention of this thing, the breastplate of righteousness. And we have in our painting here a a picture for you of the breastplate of righteousness. You see that big burly thing there, just a breastplate rather, not necessarily of righteousness. This is a Roman soldier. And perhaps what Paul had in mind as he was talking about the different spiritual armor. Last week we covered the belt of truth. And now this breastplate of righteousness. And the breast would have been made of metal, of course, and it would have protected this whole area from the neck kind of the top of the thighs, this area that's full of vital organs, this area where we could be so easily mortally wounded. Incredibly important to be protected in this place. Now remember that when Paul talks about the spiritual armor, he's using figurative language. He's employing metaphor. He's not talking about magic. It's not just that we pray, God put a breastplate on me and there's this invisible magical breastplate and the devil can't do anything. It's deeper than that. It's more wonderful than that. It's grounded in some real truth. But God's provision in the breastplate of righteousness that we'll explore in just a moment covers the deepest, most vital places of our lives of who we are. That's, that's the imagery of a breastplate, right? The, the vitals. Two weeks from today will be one year since my eight-year-old daughter, Daisy Love, went to be with Jesus. And it's difficult moving toward the one-year mark. There's all sorts of deep feelings that go with that. And when I think about Daisy and how much I miss her almost a year on, I get this aching right here and this pit. I've got it right now. This, this just deep, indescribable pit in my stomach. It's strange, isn't it? How our emotions manifest themselves in our guts. Isn't that interesting? Our emotions manifest themselves in our guts. That's why the ancient Hebrew culture, the Jews, when when they talked about the heart, they were referring to the mind and the will. They were referring to all the parts of us that make us act, think, and behave in a certain way. Knowledge, understanding, our conscience, desire, drive. All these things were issues of the heart in ancient understanding. And then you read the Old Testament and you'll talk, you'll talk about someone feeling something in their bowels. It, it means the guts. And our guts respond, right, to deeply to emotion. There's something going on here. You hear when people say, well, I just, I feel it in my guts. 
What does that mean? Well, it has to do with the mind and the intellect and knowledge and will and drive and desire, but it's something that's felt on this deep level. Or we talk about my heart is breaking. And we, we, we literally do. We, we, we feel it right here. It's not that the left ventricle is coming apart or anything like that. It's so much more deep, deeper excuse me, than a mere physical reality. It's this deep, deep emotional and spiritual thing that happens in the depth of who we are. Sometimes we hear bad news and we get sick to our stomach. There's something about this area by the design of God that's very vital to who we are. It's, it's, it's the seat and the place of the emotions, the will, the desires, drive. Touches the deepest part of who we are. And so God has made provision to protect the deepest part of who we are because the enemy is after the deepest part of who we are. So he goes after things that pertain to emotion, the will, desires, and drive. And he goes after them primarily with unrighteousness. He wants to affect our emotions with unrighteousness, our will with emotions. He, want us, he wants us to begin to desire things that are unrighteous, to be driven with unrighteous cause. And so God has called us to righteousness and God has given us this breastplate of righteousness to protect the deepest places of who we are. Now, what is the breastplate of righteousness? First, we have to understand the concept of righteousness. And so we'll define it as it pertains to being an attribute of God. Look up on the screen here. Righteousness. This is from Wayne Grudem, my favorite theologian. Righteousness is a doctrine that God always acts in accordance with what is right and that he is himself the final standard of what is right. We talk about God being righteous. This is one of his primary attributes. It means that God is right, completely holy and fully right, just, excellent in his quality, in his moral character, in the essence of his being. As it pertains to right and wrong, God is always right. And God is the one who establishes what is right. He is righteous. Moses, in speaking about God in Deuteronomy 32, said, all his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and right is he. God said about himself through the prophet Isaiah, I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. And the psalmist reverberated the same idea when he said in Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So righteousness primarily is an attribute of God. It means that he is right, holy, just, excellent in all that he is and in all that he does. So then we often think about what does it mean to act righteously? To act righteously is to endeavor to do what is right according to God's standard, right? To be imitators of God, to to go God's way, to obey God is to act righteously. 
So because God is righteous and we're called to righteousness, Satan makes it a primary aim of his to work unrighteousness in the world, to malign the image of God and the will of God and the character of God and what God wants to do in our life. Unrighteousness being the opposite of righteousness is wickedness. All that is bad, all that is horrific, unrighteousness. This is the territory and these are the schemes of the enemy. And so God gives us this protection of the vital essence of our being, our emotion, our intellect, our will, our desires, our drives. He calls us to be protected with a breastplate of righteousness. And there are two ways that righteousness works in the life of the believer as a breastplate. Remember, in talking about the spiritual armor a few weeks ago, we said that every piece of God's armor presents to us two things, something to be believed and something to be obeyed, right? That's where we talked about. It's not just magic. It's metaphor. It's deeper than magic. It's something to be believed and something to be obeyed in every part of God's armor. And what is to be believed and what is to be obeyed with the breastplate of righteousness are these two concepts. What is to be believed is imputed righteousness, We'll describe that, explain that in a moment. What is to be believed is the call to practical righteousness. Righteousness is a breastplate, armor for the believer, in as far as it is imputed to us by God through Christ, and in as far as it is practiced by us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, imputed righteousness, something to be believed. Here's a definition of imputed righteousness. God clothing us, the believer, in the righteousness of Christ at the moment of salvation. God clothing us in the righteousness of Christ at the moment of salvation. Again, Wayne Grudem says this. When we say that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, it means this, that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. He regards it as belonging to us. Let this begin to sink in. The doctrine of imputed righteousness, righteousness given to us by God through faith in Jesus Christ, is that God thinks of us as having the righteousness of Christ, the excellence, the moral character, the rightness of Christ is given to us. God reckons it to us. He regards it as belonging to us. Now that's admittedly, admittedly, is that a word? Admittedly, admittedly a strange concept, but it's, it's rather normal in the economy of God. There's several ways in which God imputes things to others. Think about the sin of Adam. Adam's sin was imputed to us. Adam and Eve sinned, but their sin and their sinfulness is imputed to us. It's the doctrine of original sin. They sinned, We didn't do their sin, but their guilt was imputed to us. God reckons us to be guilty of sin as Adam and Eve were guilty of sin. Now, we prove that to be true because we do, in fact, sin. Yep. Yes, we do. Confirmation. Amen. Can I get a witness? Secondly, and more wonderfully, at the cross... God imputed our guilt to Christ. 
You see, the, the doctrine of imputation seems, seems strange, but it's gloriously wonderful. We are guilty because Adam and Eve were guilty. Their guilt is imputed to us. But then Christ on the cross took our guilt and God in his kindness imputed our guilt, our condemnation to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is a great exchange of the cross of Jesus Christ. Our guilt imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. I'll take that swap any day. Our guilt imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us, this glorious exchange on the cross by the grace of God. So that Romans 4, 6 says this, to the one who does not work, that is, is not working for their salvation by trying to carry out the law. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us, we are seen by God as being in Christ. The righteousness, the rightness of Christ is given to us. We often say that Christ died in our place on the cross. You also must understand that Christ lived a perfect life for us. The righteousness of his life is credited to our account. It's not as though through the cross our sins are merely forgiven and now we're morally neutral. It's that we're actually given the righteousness of Christ so we have positive moral standing before God because our standing is in Christ. That's why it's so wonderful to be called sons and daughters of God. So God now deals with us as with his son, Jesus, who obeyed perfectly and lived a perfect life because we couldn't and died a death on the cross so that we won it. This glorious exchange. Imputed righteousness. Paul says in Romans 5 that we have received righteousness as a free gift through our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this further in Philippians. He says that his goal and ours, Philippians 3.9 on the screen, says this. Paul says his goal was that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So that, as we say amen, Isaiah reverberates in chapter 61 and says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul, my soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. This is what has happened to the believer through the cross of Jesus Christ as we put our faith in him and his finished work is that we are reckoned righteous by God. So that God now deals with us wonderfully. And so we are now free from trying to show ourselves to be or prove ourselves to be righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ. Now, here's how this enables us to stand firm against the enemy. 
One of the things that the enemy does is he tempts us and then he accuses us when we give in to that temptation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He tempts us with things like this. Listen, you ought to do this. After all, nobody will know. So it's not that bad. You ought to do this. It's not hurting anybody else. So it's not a big deal. You ought to do this. Everybody else does it. You ought to do this. That will numb that deep ache inside and you'll feel better. You ought to have this. You certainly deserve it. You've earned it. And then the moment we do this, the enemy is there in the next second to say, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> how, can you, how can you think that you can stand before God now doing that? You did that last week and you just did it again. I'll get you to do it again next week. How can, how can you think that you can approach God? How do you think that you could stand before God? How could you ever expect God to be kind to you? Who do you think you are? And at that moment, the believer gets to say, well, you're right, I did that. And I think I'm a sinner who has been saved by grace and has been made righteous by faith so that God now sees me in his son and loves me with an unending, perfect love and has cleansed me of all unrighteousness. That's who I am. So in the moment of the battle of temptations and accusations, we're able to stand firm. And and, and this protects us against discouragement, right? Because we get discouraged when we think, "I, I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe I'm falling into the same thing. And God says, listen, I knew you would do it again. That's why I didn't tell you to count on your own righteousness. That's why I gave you the righteousness of Christ through faith. Now, conversely, Satan will tempt us this way. Satan will often tempt us to be good. As long as he could get us to believe that we will earn something from God in being good. This is where we also need the breastplate of imputed righteousness. He will get us to think, well, if you served more at church, if you gave more to the poor, if you were kinder to these people, if you did this, that, and the other, then you would be a good Christian. Then you would earn something before God. Then God would give you what you're wanting. Satan wants us to get trapped in this concept of self-righteousness. We stand against that with the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Paul says, I'm not looking after a righteousness that comes from myself through obeying the law. I'm looking for the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah the prophet said, even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. But if Satan could get a saint to be religious, to think that God is like Santa Claus, And if we're just nice enough and good enough, then we would merit something from God. Then Satan is also doing just as well as if he tempted you to do evil. Right done with a motive of self-righteousness is just as far off the mark as evil done. 
and rebellion to righteousness. Christ makes this clear in Luke chapter 18. I'll just read it for you real quick. And Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Luke 18.10 now, he said this, two men went up into the temple to pray. One Pharisee, one was a Pharisee, and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax gatherer, Jesus said, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, the tax gatherer, went back home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Satan loves to have us in the place of the Pharisee. Well, look what I do, right? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get, and I'm not like other people. That's why last week we talked about one of Satan's schemes is to get us trapped in that thing of comparison. We can always find someone who's doing worse than us. And in doing that, we're looking to justify ourselves. Satan will tempt us to evil and Satan will tempt us to good if he could get us to think that it makes God our debtor, that we earn something, that we have some standing before God in our doing of good. The only righteousness for the believer that's any credit before God is imputed righteousness by faith. And because it's Christ's righteousness, it's absolutely perfect. You can't add to it and it can't be taken away from. So our standing before God is secure in the face of temptation, accusation, pulls toward unrighteousness and wickedness, and pulls toward self-righteousness. We stand firm against the enemy with the breastplate of imputed righteousness. Does that make sense? Okay, now that's something to be believed. We believe that because God's word says it, and that helps us to stand firm. Now remember, this other side of the coin of every piece of God's armor is something to be obeyed. And what is to be obeyed is practical righteousness. Now, practical righteousness differs from self-righteousness. We're not doing it in order to be approved of by God. We're doing it because in Christ, we have already been accepted by God through faith. It isn't self-righteousness. It's the righteousness of response to love. Practical righteousness is us endeavoring to think, act, and live in a way that imitates and honors Christ. Again, not in an effort to be loved or accepted by God, but because through Christ we are and have been loved and accepted by God. This is obedience as a right response to what God has done for us. We already have righteousness imputed. imputed. Now this is practical righteousness, trying to bring the practical aspects of our life in line with the positional aspects of our life through faith. 
And I'll say this, and I said it earlier in this series. The single best defense against the schemes of the enemy in our life is to obey Jesus Christ in the way that we live daily. If we're walking in obedience to Christ, there's very little the enemy can get over on us. So many of our problems are because we are dealing in, walking in, moving toward, practicing unrighteousness. And so instead of going the way of God, we're going the way of the enemy. Instead of partnering with the Holy Spirit who is endeavoring to conform us to the image of Christ, we're partnering with the enemy who is looking to malign the image of Christ in us. So many of our problems with the enemy come from a refusal to obey the clear commands of God. After all, the enemy's greatest weapon against us is sin. Tempting us to sin and getting us trapped in the effects of sin, including shame, condemnation, so on and so forth. And one of his greatest schemes and scams is to get us acclimated to sin. Let me read you uh, this little quote from one of John MacArthur's books. He says about Satan, he wants you to think that sin is not so bad. He wants to drown you in a sea of sin so that you become very tolerant of it. He wants to entertain you with sin so that you won't think it's as evil as it really is. He wants you to laugh at sin on television and at the movies. He wants to twist your thinking by putting sinful ideas to appealing music. He wants to confuse your emotions by corrupting your desires and drawing your affections to the wrong things. He wants to destroy your conscience so it will no longer warn you. He wants to debilitate your will and get you to do things that you shouldn't do. One of Satan's greatest schemes in our culture today is to get the saint acclimated to sin. Man, it's, it's, it's pervasive. It's confronting us all the time. We would have to confess that we are to a large degree acclimated to evil, wouldn't we? The shows that we watch, the music that we listen to, the things that we surf on the internet, we are acclimated to evil. This is all part of a way that the enemy gets us to say, it's not that bad. Everybody does it. That's normal. Oh, mom, it's just a movie. One of Satan's greatest schemes is to get us acclimated to evil. Scripture would call us away from this. Romans 13, we put it on the screen, 12 through 14. We're urged to lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let me read to you also Romans chapter 6. Turn there if you want. You might beat me there. I'm going very slow. Romans chapter 6. Says in verse 11, so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall no longer be master over you. We've been freed from the power of sin from the penalty of sin. Sin is no longer master over us. What Satan is trying to do is subtly lure us back into being enslaved by sin. And the way that we stand firm against that, the way that we're protected by that luring back into the mastery of sin is through practical righteousness. It's called saying no to the wrong things and right, yes, to the right things. Going God's way. Because to continually give ourselves to sin is in some way to give Satan a continual space and place in our lives. If righteousness imputed and practical protects us from the schemes of the enemy, as the text says, then unrighteousness exposes us to the schemes of the enemy. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The flip side of that coin is give in to the devil continually and he'll cling to you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to remind us of something very, very important here with regards to spiritual warfare and practical holiness in our lives. This is very important. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. We mentioned it last week. We'll talk about it for a moment now. Paul writes and says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let me read it to you. We'll put it on the screen from the New Living Translation. It's helpful. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Foothold. Have you heard that term before? As it pertains to spiritual warfare, foothold for the devil. Now, it's not only anger that gives a foothold for the devil. Paul's just employing the idea of anger here. What gives a foothold to the devil in our lives is persistent sin, habitual sin the sin that we refuse to repent of, the sin that we refuse to begin to walk in obedience with regards to by the power of the Holy Spirit. Persistent, habitual, willful sin gives the enemy a foothold in our lives. That word translated foothold in the New Living Translation, translated opportunity in the New American Standard is a Greek word topos. Okay, topos. It's where we get our word topography. And it generally speaks of space, or place, right? A space or a place that can be inhabited. An area of any size, a place of habitation. It also speaks of a favorable circumstance to do something, a possibility, an opportunity, a chance. There we see the two different translations. New American Standard. Don't give the devil an opportunity in your life through persistent sin. New Living Translation, adding to that idea. Don't give the enemy a foothold in your life, a space, a place, 
opportunity through persistent sin. So that word tapas is generally used, it's spatial language, okay? It talks about, it's a spatial language of inhabitation. And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this spatial language to describe spiritual realities. In Ephesians 3.19, he speaks of the believer as a vessel that can be filled up with God. Spatial language, right? We're not, we're not really a, a vessel per se, but it's spatial language. Talk about some spiritual reality, right, in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 22, he talks about the people of the church as a place of dwelling for God, right? That's, that's very real. We don't make up a, a building, but somehow we're the dwelling, dwelling place for God. It's real. In chapter 3, verse 17, he talks about Christ dwelling in the hearts of believers. I mean, is Jesus like literally in your heart? Is he again, is he over in the left ventricle? Like, where is he in your heart? He is in us. We're talking about spiritual realities that are hard to describe with physical things. Christ in us. God inhabiting the church. A vessel being filled up with God. Metaphorical language employed to give us a glimpse into spiritual realities. Now, when we talk about persistent sin, giving the devil a foothold, an opportunity. The idea being expressed is a concept of surrendering authority and control to the enemy. Surrendering authority and control in our lives to the enemy. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3, 17. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Dwell in your hearts through faith. When he talks about wanting Christ to dwell to a greater degree in our hearts, he's talking about us coming under the lordship of Christ. Christ is already in us. A greater degree of dwelling means that we are coming under a greater degree of the influence of Christ, his lordship, his righteousness, his rule, his reign, his authority, his control, submitting and surrendering our lives to him. He wants us to experience more of the rule and the reign of Christ. Conversely, when he warns us about surrendering space, tapas, opportunity, a foothold to the devil or demons, he's warning against us, allowing them to exert a domineering influence in our lives. Let me say it plainly. A foothold is an area of our lives that through persistent sin, we have surrendered to the influence of the enemy. And so it gives him a space, a place from which to operate in our lives and work things like discouragement, oppression, greater degree of influence, always nailing us with shame, guilt, condemnation, getting us trapped in the same behaviors, drawing us deeper into unrighteousness, clouding our perspective, searing our conscience. These things happen through persistent unrepentant sin, if it's anger, if it's bitterness, if it's sexual immorality, if it's drunkenness, if it's slander, sin that is repeated, persistent, habitual, and not repented of, 
And when we're not endeavoring to go the way of the Lord, opens us up to a greater degree of the influence of the enemy. The way to defend ourselves against that is practical righteousness, to obey the word of God. It just cuts off the enemy from having a place, a space, an opportunity. It keeps us moving in the way and the things of God, not in the way and the things of the enemy. So, if we've surrendered ground to the enemy through persistent sin, if we sense that there's a foothold in our lives, what do we do? The first thing that we do is we repent of that sin. I want you to think of any persistent sin in your life, that thing you keep returning to, that opportunity. Repent of it. What does it mean to repent? It doesn't mean to say, I'm sorry. It's much more than that, isn't it? To repent is to change our minds about it and change the direction in which we're going. To say, wait a minute, no, this really is not what God has for me. This is unrighteousness, not righteousness. This isn't what God has for me. This is exactly where the enemy would have me be. I'm changing my mind about this, and I'm going to change the direction. I'm going to begin to go God's way, go the way of righteousness instead of unrighteousness. We repent of it. We turn away from it and turn to God. And then we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, who is the power of God, that we might live lives that are worthy of witness of Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in victory of those things. And when I have footholds in my life, what'd you say? The pastor has footholds in his life? Mucho. When I have footholds in my life through persistent sin, unrepentant sin, rebellion against God, giving myself over to unrighteousness continually, I not only need to repent of it and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, I always need help from someone else in prayer. I need to confess my sins to brothers and sisters and say, look, you got, you got to pray for me. Man, there's, there's this foothold. Jesus said when we agree together with one another in prayer, there's power in that. We need the community of faith. We need one another to pray for each other. Put your hands on one another and say, just begin to pray that that power of the enemy would be broken in our lives in the name of Jesus according to who Christ is and what he did on the cross for us. Stand in the truth of imputed righteousness and ask the Holy Spirit to help us walk in righteousness as we repent of that sin. Peter said, repent therefore that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of God. And then we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in imputed righteousness. We rejoice in the cross. And we rejoice in this, that if we fail again, when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, the enemy wants us living in fear, but we have tremendous boldness through the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. So the breastplate is to trust and rejoice in imputed righteousness and to practice and pursue practical righteousness. And this just closes the door to the enemy in our lives. Now, we're going to go into a time of just marinating in the presence of the Lord, worshiping. And prayer team will be up here. It's going to be hard to get to them today, but don't, don't, <laughs> don't not. The prayer team will be up here ready to lay hands on you as you come forward and you say, look, I think, I think the enemy's got a foothold in my life in this area. 
Brothers. Brothers. The enemy has got a foothold in your life through pornography. Today is the day to confess and repent and get free. Unrighteousness is an open door to the enemy. One of his greatest ploys in the world today is the easy click of our computers. And if we're persisting in that, there is a foothold in our lives. And we must repent today. Get prayer and begin to get free from that. Sisters, sisters. Your constant comparison of yourself to others. It's not what God has for you. You are his beloved daughter. He loves you with a perfect love. He made your eyes that shape. He chose your hair color. He formed you in your mother's womb. You're altogether lovely in his eyes. If you're trapped in that thing of comparison to others, the enemy's got a foothold in your life through that because you're never satisfied with who you are in Christ, but you're always wishing you were someone else. Man, the enemy would love to torment you with that till the end of your days. Get free from that today. Get free from that. Any sin that you're persisting in today, confess, repent, get prayer, and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh and help you walk in the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you, God, for this provision. Help us today as your people to pursue righteousness. Open our eyes to where we're not seeing unrighteousness. Reveal to us where we're walking in the darkness. Sometimes we can't even see it. Sometimes that sin is so familiar and so old that it hasn't even hit us yet. The sort of bondage that we're in. We're praying the Holy Spirit, you'd reveal those things. Reveal strongholds. Reveal footholds. Reveal places in our lives that we've surrendered to the enemy. And then help us, God, as we repent and come to you in prayer. Help us to walk in freedom through the cross and the resurrection and the power of Jesus Christ. We want to see transformation in our lives and transformation in our communities. We want to walk in righteousness and holiness. We want to be witnesses of you with those that we live with. So we need help of the Holy Spirit. Teach us to walk in these things. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to destroy the works of the enemy. Thank you that in you there is no fear. Thank you that greater is he who is in us and he who is in the world. Thank you that in you, Christ, we are more than conquerors and nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe and walk in these things for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.